KMTT. This is Eshubik. Today is Tuesday. Yudzayim Betevet. Today's share will be given by myself. It's the weekly share in major issues in medieval Jewish philosophy. And this is the third share in the series. Last week, we discussed the idea of proofs to the existence of God. And today, we wish to examine the proof offered by the Rambam, both to understand the actual proof itself, but more importantly, to understand its implications and ramifications, especially even after, as a formal proof, it's been more or less refuted. The Rambam's proof is offered in the beginning of the second chapter of the Morena Bukhin. I'm going to skip much of the technical details. The Rambam introduces the entire second chapter of Morena Bukhin with a list of axioms, logical axioms, heavily indebted to traditional Islamic philosophy. And on the basis of those axioms, he then presents the proof in the first chapter of the second chapter. Since we're not actually interested in the technical, formal basis for the proof, we don't have to examine fully the axioms. We want to get the general idea of what the Rambam is trying to do. The Rambam's proof belongs to a general category called cosmological proofs. Cosmological proofs are those which are based on general features of existence. In other words, they don't prove the existence of God because something happened yesterday. If I were to walk in the street and a miracle would occur, I would predict that in 10 seconds uh, it's going to rain green frogs. Then it rains green frogs, some people might be convinced that this is a proof that God or something similar exists. That would not be a cosmological proof. It's based on do we accept the historicity, the accurateness of the event on which I am basing my proof. For instance, if one has a proof the existence of God based on Malad HaSinai, that would not be a cosmological proof, because we would have to first agree that the Malad HaSinai took place. The cosmological proof is based on the most general features of existence, the fact that the world exists, or in the case of the Rambam, the fact that things move, which is an example of the fact that things change. The Rambam's first proof is based on the uh, uh, event called motion. The Rambam makes the following assumptions. If something is in motion, it has to have a cause. That's basically a Sicilian assumption. Every effect has a cause. The cause of an object, a physical object, a material object, which is moving, has to be motion. There's a logical basis for that, and that is that there's nothing in an effect that's not in a cause, and if only motion can cause motion, that's an, an assumption. But it's also based on our experience. In order to get something to move, you have to move it, you have to hit it. And therefore, motion is what causes motion. However, the cause, which was also motion, is also an effect, it's an event. And it also requires a cause. And its cause must be motion. And the cause of that cause must be a motion. Etc., etc., in retrogressive manner. As we're going backwards, in the chain of causality. But every cause that we find is motion, which requires a cause, which is motion. The next assumption says an infinite regressive chain is impossible. 
if we have an event that exists, but can't stand behind it an infinitely long regressive chain of causes because if the chain is infinite, we could never have transversed the entire chain. If there are an infinite number of steps which one has to pass through in order to reach an observed event, but one couldn't possibly have passed through an infinitely long chain, and therefore that explanation is impossible. Therefore there must be a first cause which does not require itself a cause. Otherwise, we can't get on the road, we can't get on this, on this chain. Since motion exists, and it's cause, there must be at some point in this chain a first cause, which is an unmoved mover. It is the cause of the first motion, but it itself is not motion, so that there's no need to explain where its motion comes from. The unmoved mover, the first cause, the cause that is not an effect is what we call God, according to the Rambam. And if we have proven logically, given the fact that motion exists, that there must be a first mover, there must be an uncaused cause, and if we have proven the existence of what the Rambam calls God, the Rambam calls Elohim. Before we continue, we'd like to make a small uh, change in the, Rambam's, in the Rambam's proof. As I mentioned, there's an assumption here that an infinite regressive chain of causes is impossible. It's hard to, uh, to justify that assumption. It has a certain logical appeal. Basically, uh, philosophers don't accept it. You're not dealing with a chain in which one has to spend a certain amount of time on each step. Even if one did, we don't know that time is not infinite in a regressive manner, although Aristotle assumed that it was not. But there's a simple uh, uh, emendation to the proof which avoids the problem of the infinite regressive chain. And that is, let's assume that there is an infinitely regressive chain. There's an infinite number of causes which altogether are the res uh, result in a given motion which I see today. Taking the entire chain as a unit, the entire chain requires a cause, because every effect requires a cause. So even if each individual motion within the chain has a cause before it, infinitely going back in the chain of causes, but what about the entire picture as a whole? Put into modern terms, it could be that everything within nature has a cause within nature, but what is the cause of all of nature, the entire system? That also requires a cause. And therefore, I, there must be a cause outside of nature, which does not require a cause itself. It's an uncaused cause, and that I call God. Aside from the logical problem of the infinitely regressive chain, which we are presumably solved by switching to the cause of the whole chain, rather than the cause of the first link in the chain, there are certain other advantages to putting the proof in this manner. The Raman does not do it. This is a, 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 a later development. But there are certain advantages. And, and one of the advantages, again, other than the logical philosophic one, is that it appears to be much closer to what we actually mean by God. The Raman's proof of the first cause has the effect 
if we are believers in a living religion, of at least leaving the philosophic notion of God, the philosophic proof of God, extremely distant. But you've proven that everything that exists today has in some point, in some kind of a chain, a first, first but very distant cause. Now, of course, one has to realize that when the Raman proves the existence of God, he doesn't merely leave it at that. One's religious life is not merely to pray to that which has been proven. It forms a basis, a logical basis, of what the relation of Torah will add. But nonetheless, the God as proven by philosophy in the Rambam is, is the first in a very, very long chain, whereas we today are connected to the last stages of that chain. The reason why you exist could be because of the cause. And that cause has a cause, and that cause has a cause. And only at some amazingly long line of, of causes would one get to God. I don't think this disturbs Rambam very much, but it does disturb many people who have tried to connect the Rambam's truth to their religion, to their belief, their actual belief, their, 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 their heart and mind belief in, in, in God. What the emendation that I did to the Rambam's truth does is that God is the immediate cause of everything, taking everything as, as a unit. And at least, perhaps I'm only speaking psychology now, but at least psychologically, that gives a God whose connection to our lives appears to be much more, much more immediate and much more, and much more present. But there is a, a, a second and more important result of this emigration, one which actually gives us the importance of cosmological proofs altogether. Today, the proof is not normally accepted by most philosophers, including those who, are, who, are, who, who believe in God. It's not really a problem of atheism versus theism. As I pointed out, the assumption that there's no uh, infinite degressive chain is not accepted. But even the idea that there must be a cause of the whole shebang, of the entire chain, which has to exist outside the chain, is merely an assumption. After all, the whole proof is based on the fact that every effect has to have a cause. Therefore, we say, there must be a cause for the entire chain of motion. But that cause, I propose, does not have a cause. Because it's the cause of everything else. So in the end, I do assume that there can be something, I've proven that there has to be something, which is an uncaused cause. But once you say that, you could claim that perhaps the entire chain of existence does not need a cause. That it's the cause of itself. It's an uncaused cause. Everything within the chain has a cause, which is our experience. But when you ask about the entire existence of everything, perhaps that does not need a cause. After all, both sides of this question, if God is the cause of everything, or if everything is the cause of itself, both assume that there can be an uncaused cause, that there is at least one thing which is not have a cause, which is the explanation for itself. Therefore, the question merely arises as to whether I think it's more logical that there should exist a specific thing, which we call God, which is different than everything else. It's an uncaused cause. Or, do I make my distinction between individual things and the entire picture taken as a whole? Individual things have causes, but the entire picture, the world as a whole, the cosmos, nature taken as an entire system, that does not have a cause. It's the cause of itself. It's very difficult to say that there's a logical preference for one picture over the other. 
Mythologically, we no longer have a proof. But what we do have is a very, very important distinction between two different pictures of the world. The second picture, the one that says that nature is the cause of itself, is in fact a, a, a apprehension, a picture, which lies at the way in which science works today. It's an axiom of science that any given event must have a cause. You can't simply say, well, that happened. You immediately search for the cause of it. That's how science works. That's, how, that's, that's what gives science its driving force. But if I would ask, but what's the cause of everything, scientists would shrug their shoulders. It's not the kind of question that science can begin to answer, and therefore, the working assumption is that at least within science, there won't be an answer. In other words, nature is the explanation for everything, but there is no explanation for nature. And that's what we would call a naturalist explanation. Everything finds its explanation within nature, because nature is the explanation. Explanations don't need an explanation. So nature does not need an explanation, but everything else finds an explanation in nature. Theism, theism says that nature itself needs an explanation. But God does not need an explanation. So the question is, is there a difference between the whole and its parts? Or is there a difference between one particular thing and everything else. That is, in fact, what the Rambam was searching for in his truth. For the Rambam, it was extremely important to show that God is different than everything else. That which we call God is by definition and by logic and by proof the wholly different. Everything else has an explanation. Everything else is not independent, but dependent on everything else. The Rambam has an expression he uses very often it says that in, within nature, all things are connected to all things. The chain that's called cause and effect connects all things. If you hit something hard enough, it will be hit. It will be broken eventually. And every event, at least in theory, every event has an effect on every other event and every other object. But there is one thing who is independent. And that's what's so important for the Rambam to define about God, that he is not dependent at all on anything in the world. To say it in a simple manner, nothing that happens will cause a change in God. Whereas God can and does cause changes in everything else. That is what we mean, not in the common sense, but in the philosophic sense, in the word supernatural. In, in common usage, the word supernatural means weird, eerie, strange, undefined. But, but the logical use of the word supernatural, and theism is a supernatural system, says that there exists something which is above, super nature. It's above nature, meaning that nature does not affect it, but it affects nature. The Raman in the Yad HaChazakah, not in the Maran Bukhim, and the Yad HaChazakah, which is not meant to be a philosophic word, he merely summarizes in the beginning the basic points the first thing he says about God is that God is independent of the world. If there's no God, there is no world. But if there's no world, there's still a God. The existence of the world is not a cause or a basis for God's existence, but the opposite is true. And that's precisely what naturalism 
does not wish to say. Naturalism says that there is no individual object which is different than every other object. Obviously, science can't imagine one thing which is beyond and different than anything else. The whole basis of science is that we have the tools in which to examine objects. And we use the same tools for everything. Once you go beyond what science can examine, you're no longer a scientist in that particular act, in that particular thing that you're examining now. So when we think about God, you can't be a scientist. Because God doesn't uh, have the same nature of existence as everything else. Because science examines causes and effects. Whereas to examine nature as a whole doesn't bother scientists, because you never examine nature as a whole within science. You only examine particular, particular events. The idea that nature as a whole is the cause of itself and the cause of everything within it, in other words, basically, I give to nature the, the, the definition that theists give to God is basically a form of pantheism. Pantheism says that everything is God. What does that mean? There's a kind of a, a, a spiritual, sort of mushy-wushy kind of pantheism who says, you know, you walk around and you say everything is God. You have this feeling that the reverence which people give to God, I wish to give to everything. But the logical nature of pantheism says that, within the context of the Rambam's proof, that the Rambam imagines there is one object which is supernatural, which is the cause of the world, but the world is not the cause of it. I say that the world is the cause of everything in the world, and everything in the world is not the cause of the world as a whole. So the logical basis for what the Rambam calls God, naturalists, atheistic naturalists, attribute to the entire world. They don't actually have no God. The way the Rambam defines God, that's how they define nature. And therefore, what the proof, the cosmological proof the Rambam has, has helped us through is to Find a basic question. I'm not saying there's a proof one way or the other, but the basic question is, do you think that the basic existence of the world is an unexplained fact, which is explained only in terms of itself, but has no explanation outside itself, as opposed to every individual object and event within, the, within existence? Or, do I explain the whole picture, the entire existence of the world and of the cosmos and of all of nature as being determined by something which is totally not natural, meaning not part of the chain, not connected to the chain, and not sharing its nature, but supernatural, but outside it. And that thing, the word thing is a little bit uh, uh, abrasive here, that thing we call, we call God. There's an expression in Chazal which expresses non-philosophically but a similar idea. One of the names of God in Chazal is Makom, which means place. Why is God called Makom? God's relationship to the world is like he is the place of the world. The world is not his place. Meaning he's not in the world. Literally, the world is in him. I think what it comes to say is that God is on a different level of existence. Things exist because of the relationship to God, but God does not exist because of his relationship to, to the world. Again, I'm not suggesting 
that we should now choose which explanation is more logical, has more logical appeal. I think you could choose on the basis of which appears to you to be more in tune with the way you think, but, but logically there is no way to choose between two of them. Both of them make an assumption that there exists one thing that is different than everything else, that one thing is a specific thing, God, or that one thing is everything altogether. This is a basic divide between naturalism, nature as we see it explains itself, and supernaturalism. But nature as we see it requires an explanation, just as everything within nature requires an explanation, and I give it an explanation. In this sense, as the Raman himself thought, theism is not opposed to scientific thinking. On the contrary, theism is the continuation of scientific thinking. Just as you ask for an explanation for the movement of a leaf in the wind, or of the sun, or of the earth, so too you ask an explanation of the movement of everything taken all together or the movement of that which causes the movement of that which causes the movement of that which causes the movement. You're extending scientific thinking to its furthest limits. And what naturalism says is that scientific thinking works until you reach the limits, until you reach the boundaries. Science works within nature, but not on nature. Whereas theism says that scientific thinking, the question, what is the cause of this effect, works even on nature taken as a whole. Even when I view everything as being one thing, I still require an explanation for its existence or for any other uh, phenomenon which takes place. For instance, the phenomenon of motion, which is what the Rambam's first proof of God is, is based on. Now, a cosmological proof is very different than another common proof for the existence of God called the teleological proof. Telos in Greek means purpose. The theological proof of God attempts to show from individual, multiple individual events and phenomena in the world that there is a purpose built in to the world. And if there is a purpose, there must be a mind which designed that purpose. As opposed to the cosmological proof, the theological proof has to collect events. You have to show that there are a lot of things, all of which uh, uh, reflect purposefulness, design. And if there's a design, there must be a designer. The actual nature of theological proofs changes from generation to generation depending on what appeals to the cultural uh, view or the cultural assumptions of that generation. Uh, in the Middle Ages, design was usually shown astronomically. Why does the sun shine? Obviously, to keep us warm. There's a recent uh, development that seems similar has to do with the intelligent design uh, movement. It tries to show very deliberately that, for instance, if we were slightly closer to the sun, or slightly further from the sun, or if the sun was slightly larger, or if 
certain constants in physics were slightly different, life would be impossible. And therefore it appears that everything is designed in balance to sustain life on Earth. At a later time, in the early, in the early modern era, as the rise of biology, biology affects people very, very, very much. There's an entire book by Bishop Paley, oh, it's not Jewish. There's an entire book written to show the existence of God teleologically on the basis of the structure of the eye. The eye impressed those scientists as being extremely complicated. Obviously, all its parts are the way they are, only to allow vision. Which means someone has designed the eye. And that designer we call God. One of the reasons why evolution, the theory of evolution, was understood in the 19th century to be anti-religion was because evolution provides an explanation for biological phenomenon that makes design irrelevant. Things appear to be designed, but there's a natural explanation. It doesn't have to be a designer. There's a natural explanation to show why those things, those structures, which further a goal, will survive, and those which don't, will not. The answer of teleologists to evolution is to say, yes, but why does evolution work? Evolution is not a logical rule. And therefore, the fact that evolution works within the world shows that there is a design behind it. But in any event, in the non-biological world, uh, there still is some force to the theological argument. Interestingly enough, in the Middle Ages, no Jewish philosopher that I'm aware of uses the theological proof to prove the existence of God. The theological proof is found, but not to prove that God exists. If you know that God exists, teleology is used to bring one to thank God, to bring one to love God. For instance, the Rambam uses a basic kind of theological proof as the basis for Ahavat Hashem, for the love of God. Rambam says, when you view the heavens, again, astronomically, when you view the heavens, you see how well they're constructed, how everything has a beautiful and proper place, everything works together, that will cause you to immediately love and desire to know the intelligence which arranged all of that. And therefore, one reaches Avat Hashem. Levi in the Kuzari uses a teleological argument, similar, not to prove that God exists. Levi's proof of God is historical. But, if you examine the world and see how unbelievably well it's constructed to support life one immediately gets to know the chesed, the grace, the love, the kindness, the intelligence of God, and one develops a proper relationship with him. But I don't think, as far as I know, there is no Jewish text which uses the theological argument to prove the existence of God. The logical problems with the theological argument uh, were basically presented by uh, the British philosopher David Hume, afterwards by, by Kant. And I'm not going to go into it, it has to do with Basically, teleology is based on probability. If you found one thing which appeared to be purposeful, which appeared to have a design, it could be an accident. 
The reason why teleology works is because we seem to find hundreds of things which purport to show design. Which means basically what we're doing is we're increasing the probability that you won't accept an alternative explanation. Christians, where the probability really works here, we're not going to go into the details. But what I do wish to stress is the basic difference between a theological proof and a cosmological proof. Teleology shows a God to whom you will have a relationship. As I pointed out, the Middle Age Jewish philosophers used teleology in order to bring us to love of God, the thankfulness to God, to appreciation of God. Because it shows that God has created the system in which you live for your good, to allow you to live. If God is responsible for your eye, then you should thank Him. And you should respect Him. You should admire Him. Whereas the Rambam's proof doesn't lead to any emotion, any religious reaction to God. It leads to what the Rambam is interested in, the knowledge of God. True knowledge of the world involves knowledge of its first cause. The God of the teleologist is he who, true knowledge of him, leads one to have a relationship of respect, of admiration, of thankfulness, passive obedience to the God who has done this. On the other hand, precisely because of that point, the God of teleologist is by definition relative to you. You've proven that there exists somebody who could design this world. The world is not infinite. The amount of wisdom in the world is not infinite wisdom. And therefore, although it's, I cannot imagine who could possibly design such a wonderful world, it exceeds by amazing amount the intelligence of any human being in any supercomputer, but it still exceeds it only by a finite amount. So the God of teleologists, at least as designed from the proof, is he who is eight billion times more intelligent and more powerful than anything I can imagine. As opposed to the God of the Rambam, who isn't eight billion times more powerful or more intelligent than anything you can imagine, but he's absolutely different from anything else you can imagine. He has the nature of absolute existence, of uncaused causation, which is shared by nothing else. And therefore, one of the uh, weaker points of teleology is that perhaps, although I admire God immensely, perhaps the reverence which we associate with religion, the absolute relationship which one gives to God, is not supported, not supported completely, by the proof. To give one somewhat more striking example, John Stuart Mill, the British philosopher, offered a theological proof of God, and used it in order to answer the most important question of religious philosophy, the time of evil. He gave a good answer. The question is whether it's an answer with which we are willing to live. The time of evil says that there's evil in the world. And if God is good and powerful, all-powerful and all-good, there shouldn't be any evil in the world. We will discuss this at length at a later time. But John Stuart Mill's answer was very simple. He said, look, the world is extremely complicated. 99.99 of the time, percentage of the time, things work. They work well. Occasionally something falls down. A little earthquake here, a little hurricane there. 
But after all, there are billions and billions of events which are being run well. I prove from that existence that only a God, something has to exist who has designed this world. So he's not perfect. He's still much, 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 much more, a million times more than you can imagine yourself or, as I said, computers, people together. You couldn't possibly construct and design and run a world as well as God runs it. So even if I imagine that the reason why there's an earthquake is because God messed up, He's still a God. It's not our job now to examine the, the power of evil. But what John Stuart Mill is, is, is admitting is that a theological proof is a relative proof. You've proven that God is a billion times greater than you. If that's enough, if to Him you can pray, then you have no problem, nor do you have a problem with the fact that He's not seven billion times greater than you. Or infinitely greater than you. Because you accept that something which is much, much, much greater than you could be your God. I suspect very strongly that the Rambam would not worship a thing which was a billion times greater, more intelligent, more powerful than he. Only that which is infinitely greater than he. And no teleological proof, no proof based on what happened yesterday, what I found under the microscope, what miracles took place, could possibly prove the existence of he who is wholly different and infinitely greater than anything else that I know. We're going to end now. We will continue our discussion of the truths of God next week. And now we will continue with today's Halakha Yomit. We are still in Hilchotzitzit. The Hoskim writes that one should put on Tzitzit and make the bracha while standing. I assume there isn't that great a temptation to attempt to put on Tzitzit while sitting, although surely a little katan could be done. But the principle here is important. The making brachot while standing is common custom people to make almost all the brachot standing this is brachot shacha. most people stand while making brachot shacha. and there is a principle found in the later parts of the Yachonim one should stand while making a bracha and respect for God's name it's hard to find a source uh, a source for this obviously some brachot we make more sinning Especially if the thing that they're about requires one to sit. This is called Kriyashma. Since Kriyashma is said sitting, as the Torah says explicitly, the Shiftacha, Pukumecha, you can make it any way you want. So the Brachot are made sitting as well. Concerning Tzitzit, the source is found in the Sefer Eshko, a book by a Provencal Vishon, Rabbin Abraham Ben David, the, not the Rabbit, but the Rabbit's father in law. Whose name is also the Rabbit. Rabbeinu Abraham Avbet. The Rabbit in the Eshko quotes a Tshuva of the Gaonim that says, Kol Abrachot Mevarech Mu'umad. But the Eshko said that's impossible. That's not what he meant. What he meant was that Bekot HaMitzvah, 
should be said standing up. For instance, as Bukotzi said. And why is that? So then he quotes, he quotes Rabbati, he quotes Rabbanim. He doesn't give them their names. This is the, this is the basic source who say that there are six mitzvot which the Bukhari says standing up. And they are. The first one is Omer. Sirata Omer. Or the being of the Omer itself. Why? Because there it says in the Pasot, Me'acher Echermesh Bakama. Tachel Lispo. Me'acher Echermesh Bakama. The word Kama in the Torah means the standing wheat before it's cut. But here there's a, a drasha. Again, it's not found in the Gemara. That Bakama means standing. So Me'acher Echermesh Bakama. When you are standing, you do Sirat Okay. In Sirat Omer it says, Uspatem Lachem. You should count for yourself. Then, we look for other mitzvot where the word Lachem appears, and any mitzvot where the word Lachem appears is learned from Sirat Omer, should also be done standing. The mitzvot where the word Lachem appears are as follows, other than Omer, Kiddush Levana, because it says, HaChodesh Hazel Lachem, Tzitzit, where it says, Vaya Lachem, the Tzitzit, Shofar, says, Yom Tua Yalachem, Lulav, Velakachtem Lichem, and Mila, it says, Himol Lachem. Okay, therefore there are six mitzvot which require, which have to be done standing, and they are Omer, Kiddush Levana, Tzitzit, Shofar, Lulav, and Mila. Later, Achonim assume that after all, if this was genuinely a Gzerat HaKatur, this was genuinely learned from the Pasot, it couldn't be talking about the Bracha, because all Brachot only the Rabbanan. It's talking about the mitzvah itself. However, there might be a reason, this is what Rav Yaakov ended in the Moro Ketir sense, is that a mitzvah, which you have to stand, the bracha should also be said stand. And therefore, Rav Yaakov Endin claims, any mitzvah which if the mitzvah is done sitting, there's no reason to stand for the mitzvah as, 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 as well. You sit, excuse me, for the bracha as well. If you sit for the mitzvah, you can sit for the bracha. The Magan already asked from the mitzvah of HaFrashat Chala, where the Talmud says explicitly that one can make the bracha while sitting. Yaakov Endin's answer is, because HaFrashat Chala can be done sitting. It's done while you're cooking. It's done while it, it's done, there's no reason to stand for the hafasha of chala. And therefore the bracha is made sitting as well. Presumably that's what the eshkol means in terms of these six mitzvot where the pasuk couldn't be talking about the bracha. These mitzvot should be done standing and therefore the bracha should be done standing as, as well. I'd like to suggest an explanation as for why it's learned from the word lachem. Of course, it's a technicality. If you have two words which appear in two different uh, parashiyot, so we have a cloud called Gzerah Shava, that the words are designed to learn A from B and B from A, and therefore you can learn almost any halacha. Uh, nonetheless, here I think what the explanation is, why if it says Lachem, based on the fact that Omer should be done standing, I learned that all these things should be done standing, is Lachem means that these mitzvot God is giving you. And therefore, the doing of the mitzvah, you're accepting something from God. When we blow shofar, it's God is giving us a chance to blow shofar. He's giving us a chance to stand in front of Him and to blow shofar. Similarly for lulav, God is giving you a chance to, what is lulav? It's expressing one's simcha. It's expressing one's rejoicing lifnei Hashem in, in front of God, which is what the pasuk about, shofar, about lulav says explicitly. Similarly with the others, himol lachem, you're entering into a brit with God. 
and Kiddush Levana, which uh, Chazal say, he mentioned this when we say Kiddush Levana, that it's Kabbalat Pnei Ashkina. It's, it's, it's meeting, meeting God. When the moon comes back to the Jews, it's a form of, of being subject to a meeting, a, meeting with, uh, a meeting with God. And apparently Tzitzit as well. Putting on Tzitzit, although we don't have a source that puts a specific religious atmosphere, or putting on Tzitzit, nothing, there's no Kedusha involved. But as I pointed out in Midrash in the past, being surrounded by mitzvot perhaps changes the Jew. So it's Lachem. God is giving you the mitzvah from himself to you, and therefore you have to accept this mitzvah. And accepting something from the hand of God is done, is done while, while standing. The basic principle that I mentioned in the name of Yaakov Endin is endorsed by other Achonim as well, by the Gra and others, that says that mitzvot that are done standing, the Bachat should be said standing, mitzvot that can be done sitting, often are done sitting, there is no need, uh, there is no need to stand. Therefore the Minhag and the Halacha says to stand for tzitzit, both, not just for the Bachat, but tzitzit should be put on standing, and therefore also the Bachat should be made, if possible, standing, uh, other mitzvot, which this is not true, uh, do not have do not have the same halacha. Tefillin, for example, so there's a machloket controversy how to put on tefillin uh, based on the machab and the shulchan aruch, uh, which is actually based on the zohar. So at least tefillin shayad, svaradim and mekubalim put on while sitting and make the bracha while sitting as well. Tefillin shalosh they put on while they're standing. It's a totally different consideration. Uh, but it's not included in the six mitzvot which the Eskol uh, listed. That's it for today. This is Ezra Vick speaking from Gush Etzion, 4K MTT, Kimi Tzion, Teitzei Torah, Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim. Tomorrow's shiur will be given by Harav Binyamin Tabori in the series of the weekly mitzvah, this time for Hashat Shemot. Until then, Kol Tov Me'erat Yisrael, Kva Itim Torah. We hope that we are helping you have a regular period for learning Torah. Here in Eretz Israel, we say goodbye until tomorrow.